the Gubby Gubby are the traditional custodians of the lands we record this podcast on. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging, as they hold the memories, tradition and culture of this land. We extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures. Hello, I'm Kate Fisher. Welcome to Milkshakes for Mali, the podcast that tells the survival stories of blood product recipients to thank donors and to encourage people to donate blood, plasma, platelets and breast milk. If you are new to this podcast and want to hear the origin story, please scroll back in your podcast feed and listen to the first episode, which tells the story of our daughter Marley and her story of seronegative autoimmune encephalitis and the way that Australian plasma donors have saved her life. To find updates on Marley and her amazing seizure response service dog, Patty, and all the news from the Milkshakes for Marley community, please join us on all the socials. Today, we have Jenny and Peter join us. They are both blood donors and they are also passionate blood donor advocates. They're inspired to do this as blood donors have helped to keep their children alive. On the surface, it would seem that they have had the most horrific last few years. Two of their children have had threatening medical diagnoses and Jenny's mum has also had a diagnosis of lung cancer. A little trigger warning for this episode, it does deal with some themes of fear around the possibility of infant and childhood death and it has some serious themes that might be a bit scary for little people. So it might not be the best episode to have playing if you've got kids in the car, but it is a gorgeous episode and such a beautiful reflection of how we need to consider whole families as having additional needs when they have a member with an illness, injury or disability. In this episode, you will hear of their daughter Ava's experience of Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is the rapid onset of muscle weakness caused by the immune system attacking the peripheral nervous system. You will hear Jenny refer to the treatment as intravenous immunoglobulin infusion, which is a solution of human plasma proteins with a broad spectrum of antibody activity. This is the same treatment that has saved and preserved Marley's life across many hundreds of infusions provided by many thousands of Australian plasma donors. Jenny and Peter also share their journey of their baby boy, Eli, who was diagnosed with neuroblastoma soon after birth. This is an episode that will make you want to hold those that you love closely because none of us really know what's around the corner. Here is the story of the incredible Northy family. All right, so today we have Peter and Jenny on the Milkshakes for Marley podcast. Thank you so much for being here, guys. Thanks, Kate. Thank you. So not only are they blood donors, but they also have two children who have been blood product recipients. Um, We've had a real focus of the themes of the last few episodes of how blood donors in Australia don't just keep people alive, but they also keep families together. And a big part of the reason I wanted to interview these guys is blood donors time and time again have kept this family together. When I had this story referred to me and nominated for the podcast, um, I jumped online and I found Eli's journey being a Facebook page that documents what happens with your little boy. And through my social media search, I found a photo of Ava in the same bed that Marley had been in at the Sydney Children's Hospital. 
um, with a unicorn balloon. I'll put them side by side, these two photos, when I share your episode. But with a bottle of IVIG in the background, my heart just dropped because I was like, we have been that exact same family on that exact same ward. So can you tell me a little bit about what happened when your daughter first got sick? It was going back to 2019. Um, it was just overnight. One day she woke up and she had a really, really stumbly walk and was just feeling generally unwell. And this is going from a toddler the day previously that was playing in the creek and climbing trees and running around as normal mm-hmm. to now pretty much being unable to hold her her steadiness as she walked. Yeah. And um, it was really bizarre in the sense that I've never come across anything like it before where, you know, all of a sudden they just start to look as though she was almost like she was drunk in mm-hmm. a sense that her just her walk was really stumbly. So I sat on it for a few hours because I wasn't sure what to do. Um, I rang out a local GP and we couldn't get in for hours and I just didn't know what to do at that point. So um, gut instinct said to call triple zero for the New South Wales Ambulance Service and they conveyed her to our local hospital where Ava underwent many tests. Um, At first they thought it could be a brain tumour where it was affecting her gait um, and she had an MRI of her brain and they basically said, look, it's not, but we found that she's got enlarged sinuses. We think it's like a, an ear problem, which totally makes sense mm-hmm. in the sense that she could be dizzy. So the next day the ear, nose and throat specialist came up and they said, no, we don't, we're not convinced. We don't think it is related to her ears. Mm-hmm. Um, so f- further testing revealed later after a transfer up to the Sydney Children's Hospital at Randwick that she had Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is a very rare autoimmune disease. Mm-hmm. Wow. And that's a lot. So that's one of the things that Marley was tested for as well. And she presented in a very, very, very similar way that um, I just went from having this happy, healthy three-year-old to all of a sudden it was like she was drunk. And she was like, she was stumbling over and slurring her words. And, you know, they thought that hers was a stroke to start with. And then we went through a similar process of testing to what you guys went through. So did her, what was their first line of treatment then once they knew what it was? They sat on it for a couple of days just to see if it would get worse or better. Mm -hmm. And basically at the end, they just said the course of treatment for this is intravenous immunoglobulin. Mm-hmm. which is three days of immunoglobulin therapy, which halted and reversed some of the effects of Guillain-Barre syndrome. Right. So, yeah, our listeners will have heard us refer to that as IVIG um, through the program yeah. for different guests. And it's the same thing that has saved Marley when she's had an acute relapse, which has happened quite a few times. And it's life-preserving for her as well um, for a very similar reason because her condition is autoimmune in nature as well. So... Does she have ongoing treatment? No, we were pretty lucky that um, after the IVIG, she was functioning about about 50%. So she wasn't walking at the time. She was kind of had a crawl, but as time progressed, mm-hmm. um, we, we were very lucky in the sense that she gained her mobility back. She did walk with a limp for quite some time and she did have issues with her, with her bowels and with her 
with her gastrointestinal system being unable to eat large amounts and vomiting and mm-hmm. constipation and all of that. But at, you wouldn't even know now she's a happy, healthy six-year-old that's just, yeah. she's a bit crazy actually. She's very energetic. She climbs, she runs. I do notice at some times when she's overtired that she does have a funny little walk in her leg. Right. Yeah. But I've taken her to physios and everything and they've just basically said there's nothing that they can do, that it would just be time. Yep. And I've heard that people with Guillain-Barre syndrome have lifelong effects in the sense that they have maybe a, a, a bit of a funny walk or funny feeling in their legs mm-hmm. and it's, it will be lifelong. Mm. Yeah, it's incredible the way that that IVIG can completely turn people's lives around. Um, what do you remember most about that time, Pete? Um, it was just a really stressful time. Like we, we saw our, our two-year-old girl go from such a very active, happy child to someone that couldn't even walk. And then as the illness progressed, she then went from not being able to walk to not being able to sit up in bed by herself to um, wetting her 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 pants or needing a nappy because um she was toilet trained at that time and um all that just got lost and um she'd gone back to being a baby again and it was so sad and so scary we we honestly thought we were going to lose our daughter because um for the first couple of days they didn't even know what it was and, Mm. and they tried so many tests and so many different things to work out what was going on um, when she was finally diagnosed, it was really good because we are able to then obviously treat what was going on. But even to do that, I remember we are at Sydney Children's Hospital and um, they were doing uh, nerve conductive tests. And the way they do that was to basically electrocute her, put electronic probes on her to mm. see how her nerves work. Mm. And for that to happen, she was only two years of age. I had to hold her yeah. and hold her as still as possible why the doctors probed her, giving her electric shocks, and it was really sad. It was, it was awful. Like uh, one of the, the hardest moments I've ever been through in my life. We need more than just a Zoom chat. We definitely need a drink at what, some stage because we've been through some very, 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 very similar experiences, probably with exactly the same staff doing it for us. We'll be on a plane. We'll be on a plane to Queensland ASAP. Yeah, please do. Please do. The Sunshine Coast is beautiful at this time of year. <laughs> Um, and it's amazing, I think, when you go from that point of, you know, reckoning with the universe and begging and pleading that, you know, do you care whether she walks again? Well, not really. You know, if she never walks again, but you think you're going to lose your child, you don't really care. You know, is she, are they going to wake up? Are they going to be able to walk? You know, you're just like, as long as you can keep them here, then that's the most important thing. Um, people might be able to hear in this episode every now and again, a bit of music in the background. I am recording this outside Marley's first disco that she's been able to go to. Um, and it's funny that that grief and that trauma of those times gets you at the strangest moments that she's been so excited about this disco. And I was, you know, on the PNC, signing people in and out, doing the things that we do. And I looked over and she was just, dan- oh, it's going to get me now, dancing with her little friends and just jumping up and down and just having the best time and so carefree. And it's moments like that that I didn't think that she was ever going to get. You know, there was times where 
she didn't recognize us you know she couldn't walk she couldn't talk we have said goodbye to her quite a few times on the advice of pediatric intensive care staff thinking she's not going to make it through the night and they don't say those things lightly as you guys well know um so yeah it's the little things like that <laughs> <laughs> really get you so I just had a good cry in there and people are like crazy lady she's just a prep kid that's just dancing at a disco and you know people just don't realize how far she's come so I'm sure after everything happens with Ava you would have thought that the universe had dished out quite enough to your family um how many children have you got we have four four right and then Eli came along how long after Ava was sick did Eva did Eli come along? Um, so I was about I was about eighteen weeks pregnant when Eli with um Eli when Ava was diagnosed with Guillain-Barre syndrome. So I think it was March that Ava was sick and Eli was born in the August. So you hadn't even had time to process the Ava situation. To be fair, not really. And to be honest, as soon as we walked out of Sydney Kids Hospital, I said to Peter. I'm never coming back to Randwick ever again. <laughs> um, yeah. when, after, after Ava was sick, we were really looking forward to a new baby arriving. We thought this is our, our reward for going through so much hell with yep. Ava's health. And we thought, here we go. Life's just going to be perfect. We're not going to have any issues. We're just going to love life. But boy, were we, were we wrong. Well, at least you were on a first name basis with quite a few of the staff at the Sydney Children's Hospital in Randwick. So can you tell me what sure. happened when Eli was born? So um, Eli was born at full term under, after a really wonderful pregnancy. I would say out of all my kids that this was the best pregnancy that I have had because it was just, you know, painless, carefree, no worries. And Eli was born and he never took that first breath. Um, he was born by elective caesarean section and he never took that first breath. So I was laying there on the operating table with the sheet up in front of me so I couldn't see what was going on. Um, and the next thing I know, I'm asking Peter, you know, why is he crying? Because I've had, I've had two other caesareans prior and I kind of know what goes on, you know you know the baby cries and they take the baby away from momentarily they bring the baby back I never heard Eli crying I was saying to Peter what's going on what's going on why can't I hear him cry and Peter's like oh they're just cleaning him up they're just cleaning him up and the next thing I know I see the doors fling open they're running out the room with Eli Peter's running out with them and I'm laying there on the operating table um sorry Peter's gone to tell the kids to be quiet in That's the background okay. that is the nature um, of this podcast we have kids in the background we have disco music in the background we just do what we've got to do it's completely fine <laughs> so yeah I was laying on an operating table and Eli was gone Peter was gone and the next thing I, re I remember is I woke up in recovery because I became so irrational that they actually sedated me and yep. <laughs> Yeah, I woke up in recovery and I said, where's the baby? And they're like, oh, the baby's in, in a special care nursery with your husband. And I'm like, oh, of course. So, you know, they brought me up and he was in a special care nursery and he had the CPAP machine on and a little tube that went from his mouth into his tummy and like a cannula and fluids. And I just basically could hold his hand and, you know, 
my family came in, the kids came to see him, um, just, you know, all we could do was just stroke him, I guess. Yeah. And I was pretty much carefree in the sense that I didn't think that anything would happen or mm-hmm. anything was really wrong. I thought, you know, he'll be all right. He'll be right. Yeah. So that night, I remember I was in so much pain from just having a cesarean and the afterbirth pain after having four kids was just yeah, intense. I was, I was doped to my eyeballs, really, and I was just laying there. I had a couple of friends come over and visit and I remember our pediatrician knocked on the door and they said, look, I'm really sorry to tell you this. This was about 11 o'clock at night, but your baby is taking a turn for the worse. We're going to have to call the uh, next team and transfer him up to the newborn intensive care unit at the Royal Hospital for Women at Randwick. So I was there with him um, holding his hand till they arrived. Then they quickly whisked me away. They brought Eli in momentarily with a tube and he had a little beanie on. He was unconscious and they whisked him away up to the Royal. And the next morning they said, oh, look, we've booked an ambulance for you to go and be with your baby. And I said, oh, he'll be right. I'll I'll stay here because he'll be back tomorrow. He'll be back the next day. You know, it's fine. I'll stay here. And they said, no, 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 you need to go up to the the hospital to be with him. I'm like, okay. So 24 hours after a cesarean section, I'm climbing onto this ambulance stretcher and I was in so much pain physically, but also emotionally as well. Yeah, absolutely. And just traveling all the way from Wollongong up to Randwick in the back of an ambulance, just don't know what's going on. And I had no idea. Peter, Peter was up there already with Eli. And yeah, when I got there, he was intubated. He was non-responsive in a medically induced coma with, you know, cannulas and tubes. I didn't know what to do, where to touch or what to say and I just that's when it hit me that things weren't great I guess because you know and he had multiple things going on they tried to take the tube out multiple times and it failed so on day three the doctors I said to the doctors is it is he going to die yep and basically said to me well he's in the best place so I didn't really know how to interpret that, especially being, you know, that in that postnatal stage with a newborn baby, and I, I thought the worst. So we got the, the priest in, the local Catholic priest, we baptised Eli into the Catholic faith, and we basically waited for our baby boy to pass away. Oh, it's, and you can't explain how surreal that moment is and the courage that it takes to ask those questions about whether your child's going to see the light of another day and the way that time stands still between asking that question and getting that answer in the way that it's delivered. And I think sometimes it's so difficult not because they don't know, you know, so often it's, there's nothing, everyone's doing everything that they can as, you know, they have said to you, he is in the best possible place, you know, but you know, there's only so much, that they can do so I read something that you had written about the fact that on day three you literally started planning for his funeral because you thought that is what was going to happen next right we did that's that's right we did I remember after we got Eli baptized Peter and I they have like a little like waiting room and there's a lounge and basically Peter and I just said you know would it be inappropriate if we asked Eli's obstetrician to the funeral or 
um, I have a, a very good friend. Her husband works in the funeral industry. And I said, do you think it would be all right to ask him to do Eli's funeral? Like it was just going through our mind what, what we would do and what would be appropriate in a sense that, you know, of course, we've never even had to think about anything like this before. No. And we just, yeah, we sat there and we cried and we just thought about things and what's to come if he did pass away. And, mm. yeah, it was, I can honestly say it's, it was one of the worst times in my life. And people don't understand, I guess, like they go, oh, that's really sad. But I, I guess that like people don't understand what you're going through unless they've been in that situation mm. as well. Mm. And that in some ways you find the purest form of love in those times as well. I think I didn't know how much I could love somebody until I told Marley that she didn't have to fight anymore. And I, as a mother, didn't think that that was something that I would ever be able to do. But having seen what had happened in the few days prior, um and we had to say goodbye to her and she went into COVID isolation without us and they told us that they didn't think that she would survive that time until we could see her again it was early in the pandemic things have changed a lot now but that was what happened at that time we weren't allowed to be back on hospital grounds and anyway there's a whole story to that but when I kissed her baby head I just said you couldn't possibly give me more joy in having any more time on this earth than what you have for being here now. I mean, she was in an induced coma. She doesn't remember any of this. Um, but I just told her to stop fighting. I said, you don't have to keep fighting for mummy anymore. And I haven't, you know, you, you don't, I didn't know what the purity of love could be until you meet those moments with your children. So he got through day three. He did. He did. Um, did he start treatment pretty much straight away? Like at what point did you know what was going on? So after Eli's tube was removed, he had this wheeze, like a strider. Like when he breathed in, it was like a ah, 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 sound. And they diagnosed Eli with a condition called laryngomalacia, tracheomalacia, and bilateral vocal palsy. So the way that they did that was they put a camera down his throat, had a good look, and I said, it's a floppy trachea, floppy larynx, and his vocal cords are paralysed. Um, it's, it's common, but not too common. Eli's condition is, is mild, mm -hmm. and he should grow out of it. And I'm like, okay. So they kept him in the ICU. So there's different levels. There's like level three, level two, level one. And level one is where you're, like, you're pretty much ready to walk out the door. So Eli was in level one for a long time, just, you know, <laughs> making that noise and they basically said look he's not doing too well we're gonna have to put him back on oxygen and high flow so they did and they just could never wean him off that high flow so every time they took the high flow off he'd start that that wheezing sound again and the problem was is he wasn't gaining any weight so he actually had failure to thrive because every breath that he took was using so much energy Imagine. that he wasn't gaining yeah. any weight. So, um, and he had really, he couldn't feed very well. Like I, I attempted to breastfeed him and it was just a big struggle. So yeah. pumping around the clock, you know, putting it through his little nasogastric tube. Yeah. So it was at about four and a half weeks that the doctors decided that the week coming, we, they were going to do a tracheostomy or mm -hmm. a nasal or airway. 
So they're two totally different procedures, but they're both enos and throat procedures. Mm-hmm. And I signed the consent form for both. Peter and I went home for the weekend to spend time with our other kids. We came back on a Sunday night, went out and had some dinner, spent time with Eli before his surgery that next day. Yeah. And, yeah, slept the night and got up early, went to spend time with him that morning and had to hand my five-week-old baby to a team of surgeons to know that my son is getting, possibly getting a tracheostomy, which is a big deal. Mm. And I didn't know what to expect. Like, I'm an, a registered nurse, but I've never do- dealt with trackies before and I was like I don't know what to do so I handed Peter and I handed our newborn baby to a team of surgeons and they said look we're going to do either the nasopharyngeal airway or the trachea and I said look what are you going to do before you do it so I know for myself and I said yeah, yeah that's fine so they came out and they said look we're going to go ahead with the trackie and I'm like okay cool so we're sitting in a little waiting room just next to the operating theater and the surgeon came out again about five minutes later, and they go look we found this mass to the right of Eli's neck we actually thought he had a deviated esophagus but we're not sure what it is we need your consent to aspirate and I said oh and they said oh look it's you know we don't know what it is but I wouldn't worry about you and I'm like okay whatever so I signed the consent and they aspirated some cells from it and they sent it away for his stoka. And Eli was laying in ICU in an induced coma um, and he was so fluid overloaded, like his face was just so big and his eyes were big and um, he was non-responsive just laying there. And Peter and I were sitting by his bedside, obviously pre-COVID, you could have two people at the bedside and we get a... a a visit from an oncologist, a oh. pediatric team oncologist, and she said to us, I don't have the results as yet. We're going to go in and do a core biopsy. So that's when they place a thicker needle into right into the centre and we're going to aspirate more cells. But I'm 90% certain that this is what you call a neuroblastoma, which is, a, you know, lumps and bumps on babies usually present as neuroblastoma and I'm like oh okay you know my cousin actually passed away from neuroblastoma so I knew he had it but I didn't know the extent of what it was going to mean for our future and for Eli's future so a few days later we get the positive that Eli did have neuroblastoma which is a rare and aggressive form of pediatric cancer so Pete how during all of this, do you look after a teeny tiny baby, try and help your wife recover from a C-section when she's just had her fourth and try and keep family and friends informed and look after your other children at home as well. How do you keep all of that together? Um, <laughs> relying on family. So probably for the first week of, um, of Eli being up at Royal Women's Hospital in Randwick, um my kids stayed at home and i relied on the use of my my mum um and then also at some stage my niece and uh jen's mum helped out in, in minding the other kids so jenny and i could be by eli's side yeah 
when we realised that things were going to probably be stretched out a bit, um, I reached out to Ronald McDonald House, uh, which is on the grounds of Royal Women's Hospital and Sydney Kids Hospital, and uh, applied for accommodation there. We know uh, before we got. Yeah, before we got the accommodation with them, though, um, I was literally sleeping on the floor in the hospital. Yeah. And um, it was bloody awful, but it enabled me to be by Eli's side. But at the same time, Jenny, uh, by that time, was then a patient. She'd been transferred up to to the women's hospital also, and uh, she was a patient at that hospital. So after about a week, um, we ended up bringing the kids up. Uh, my other three kids up to, to Randwick. Um, it was just really difficult trying to keep them in school, trying to get rely on family to be there full time because we realised that potentially we're going to be there for a long time. Mm. And um, we ended up enrolling um, Luke, who was our only uh, child that was at school at the time. We enrolled him into the, the hospital school at the Sydney Children's Hospital. And um, and we just took turns of minding the other kids and, and bringing them into uh, into the hospital as often as we could, um, and obviously spending a lot of time at Ronald McDonald House just to keep the kids a break mm-hmm. from being at the hospital constantly because it, it it was a really sad place, yeah. um, sad for Jenny and I, but um, really sad for all the families that were there. It's not really a place to have kids there for a long time and um yeah Mm. were you able to utilize the starlight room and the starlight captains very much for your other children yeah we were which was really good um because of their young age though um if you're under the age of 10 you must have um, parental supervision at all times yeah and so it meant that one of us had to be there but it was perfect for the kids yeah um it's an excellent service they've got playstations Mm. um they've got movies playing they do trivia games with the kids there's arts and crafts um there's you name it they've got it it Mm. was honestly a great place a great break for the kids from being in the hospital yeah um but also, do you know what? It was a great, <laughs> great place for me to go just to, to have a break from being in the hospital, mm. uh, being sad. I could, for for that hour or two that I happened to be in the, the room, I could try and put all the stress and worries at the back of my mind. Yeah, it's a pretty magical place, that Starlight Room. And we're so grateful that when Marley was at her sickest, that I think they relaxed things a bit with COVID restrictions and whatever, and they weren't as strict about having a parent there with them all the time because everyone was just trying oh, to juggle wow. and do the best that they could. And some of the closest memories that they, our kids have from that time are the time they spent in the, is in the Starlight Room, and it's much nicer memories than some of the other ones that they could have had of how sick Marley was at that time. So, yeah, yes. definitely. And, and even the times we couldn't be in the room, um, the hospital rooms that we were in during our stay, uh, there was always a TV by the bedside and the yeah. kids could watch the Starlight Channel and join in the games and activities via the television and the yeah. telephone. It was just, it was really good. It was pretty special. Yeah. Hi, Eli. Are you going to be part of this? I know podcasting is not a visual medium, but beautiful little Eli has just popped up on the screen in his Spider-Man pyjamas. He's just come to join us and say hello. 
<laughs> and thanks He's to blood donor, Eli can do that and be part of this podcast interview. So I'm assuming that um, he has required blood products as part of his cancer treatment. He actually hasn't. He hasn't. He hasn't. Mm. Um, but in saying that, my mum, who's recently been diagnosed with lung cancer, just received oh. some packed yeah. red blood cells. But Eli only had two rounds of chemotherapy, which his levels were actually low, but not low enough to meet the standard for the requirement for blood product. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he would have had plenty of surgical procedures, though, I would imagine. And oh, I, more than 20 hours. Yeah. And they wouldn't have been able to do those without having the blood product on hand. So blood donors have certainly played a role as well in making sure oh, that yeah. the safety net was there just in case he needed it. So one of the things that we talk about with the podcast as well is that, you know, you talk about special needs children, but we really like to pivot that narrative to talk about families with additional needs. And your family is very much a family with additional needs. Um, It is Disability Pride Month at the moment. Can you tell us a little bit about what Eli's life looks like now um, and if he is he has any disabilities or if his life has changed due to his treatments so Eli although Eli only had the two rounds of chemotherapy and that was as a newborn baby he's almost three now he still has the effects of chemo today um Eli has an oral aversion so he doesn't really like to have food which is a big issue for us obviously so up until probably 18 months ago he had a a nasogastric tube which is the tube that goes through his nose down his tummy but now he has what's called a peg tube so it's a little hole in his stomach and it's like a little button I guess you could say and we've got all these cool little um pads that go underneath the lady from Queensland makes them and they're all different patterns we've got Spider-Man and Batman so Eli receives the most of his nutrition through his peg. Mm-hmm. Um, he has intensive speech therapy and OT and physio, mm-hmm. dietitian input. And um, so what we try to do is give Eli what's called a blended diet. So basically what we eat is a family, mm-hmm. serve him on a plate and whatever he doesn't eat, which is nothing, basically he might have a little bit of tomato sauce. Yeah, I blend it up and then I peg. Mm-hmm. Um, and then overnight to make sure he has enough calories, he's on a continual feed of formula, which mm-hmm. is medically grade formula, high calorie. Um, and basically it's a complete diet, that formula. So he can live on that formula for, mm-hmm. for life, basically. And in consultation with speech and dietitian, you know, every couple of months they might weigh him and say, oh, we might need to dumb it down a bit. He's put, he's put on too much weight this month or he hasn't put enough and we'll have to put it back up yeah so that's a big thing for him another thing is because of the tracheostomy because it's before the vocal cords he doesn't speak right um he can say a few words here and there where he forces air past the trachea but he does sign Auslan like a pro that's amazing, amazing. Yeah. yeah and I'm actually learning too but Emma Wiggle she's the best <laughs> So if anyone's got connections to Emma Wiggle, I've been trying desperately to interview her on this podcast. Oh, there you go. 
We'll put a shout out through this episode as well to say if anyone's got connections to Emma Wiggle, could you please hook us up? Yeah, because EY is a massive Wiggles fan. So Emma Wiggle, she signs Auslan wonderfully. So she's a really good starting point. But um, so yeah, just basic signs for him. But he's getting better and better. Mm. He also has his own signs for different things as well. Mm. So he's made up signs and we've learned obviously what they mean. Mm-hmm. He, Eli's got a a thing um, called um, tibial torsion. Okay. Oh. It's yeah. where a, it's, they're not sure why it's caused. It's where his tibias are rotated inwards. So he's got like little feet that point into each other. Right. And he's also got very low muscle tone. So when he walks, his ankles kind of bend in. So he's got um, like special shoes that I've got to order from this medical company. Yeah. Um, and because of the low muscle tone and the tibial torsion, he doesn't cope walking long distances. He gets very fatigued. So we've actually got like a, a wheelchair pram. So it's a mixture between the both that is very practical that will last him for the next couple of years where I can just whack him in and we can go for a walk because he's definitely outgrowing a standard, you know, commercial pram. Yeah. But yeah, they're not sure if the tibial torsion was from the way he sat in my tummy or if it's because he spent so much time in hospital or laying mm-hmm. down as treatments. But he's definitely behind, but he's mm-hmm. catching up pretty quickly. Yeah. Like he started to do wee on the potty, That's you amazing. know, and it's just those little milestones. Where so how old is he now? Uh, he'll be three in August. So mm-hmm. two and nine months, ten months. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they said... I remember a physio said he might not walk until he's three. Yeah. He might not do this. He might not do that. He might, you know, never do this. And I'm like, well, obviously you're wrong because he started walking just before his second birthday and now he's, yeah. you know, surprising us all with wanting to learn to sit on the potty and, you know, interested in his surroundings, walking around, you know, he's just, he's a real testimony to you know the fight for life i guess i usually do a bit of a wrap up at the end of an episode but this week i'm just going to leave it to pete except to do a shout out to the incredible staff at the sydney children's hospital in randwick particularly our dream team from c2 south eliza you kept me smiling georgie you give the best late night manny petties at the nurse's station, even after being terrified by Marley jumping out from under a bed in the middle of the night to scare you. Uh, Dr. Pillay and Roman, you, we will be forever grateful for your wise counsel and a huge shout out to play therapist Michelle or my shell as Marley still refers to you as. You made those long weeks in hospital memorable for all the right reasons and we will be forever grateful. And the ultimate thanks, of course, goes to blood donors because without you, we would never have made it out the door of those first days in a paediatric intensive care unit. So have you guys got a final message for Australian blood donors or anyone who's looking to donate blood in the future? Look, ever since um, Ava got sick, Jenny and I have become regular blood donors. And for many years, I never donated because I was worried that it would hurt. Mm. And... uh, I was a big wuss bag because it hurts for all of about half a second while they put the needle in. It is so easy. We really encourage anybody that can, and we understand a lot of people can't donate blood, but if you can, please pull up your sleeve, donate your blood. I guarantee your blood will save people's lives, and it's the best thing that I could do. And, um, 
Yeah, so if you can, please donate. Yeah. And you get some food afterwards too. You do. And you can be part of the Milkshakes for Mali community. And anyone who is a donor is welcome always on this podcast as a guest. So <laughs> thank you so much to you two for being blood donors. And thank I... you. And to all the unsung heroes out there that donate their blood, thank you very much. And we really appreciate all of you guys. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for being guests on the podcast. It's been an absolute Thank delight you, having Kate. you on here. And I really Lovely do think we should you. try to lock in that drink because we have had too many experiences that have been just the same. <laughs> and I'm so glad that you get to tuck all your babies into bed tonight and that you guys are all together. So thank you for joining us. Thank you us. so much. Thank you. Lovely to meet you. You too. Nothing feels more Australian like the modern demonstration of mateship than donating blood or breast milk and this product being used to keep another Australian alive. Our daughter is still alive today because of this incredible selfless gift and it is my privilege to create a space for others to tell their stories and to give thanks. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kate Fisher, with Jenny and Peter Northey as our guests. Audio production was done by my beautiful husband and Marley's dad, Jeff. To make an appointment to donate, please call Lifeblood on 13 14 95. Our Lifeblood team is called Milkshakes for Mali and we have donors from all over Australia. So please join us and add your donation to our team tally. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We would be grateful if you could leave us a review and to keep an eye on our socials for some really exciting episodes coming up in the next few weeks. And as always, I'll leave the final word to Mali. Thank you for my prize, Mark.